I started work on this passage. I've looked at it several months ago. I looked at it again all this week, and I realized there is no way I can fit this into one sermon. So we're going to take, we're going to go as far as we can this week, and I think we'll get about halfway through. And we'll finish the rest next week. By the way, this is one of the reasons why it's good to come to church every week, uh, because we are, you know, doing something. We're in a project actually that we're we're building. It's not that you couldn't come uh, if you missed a week or something along those lines. It's not like we're going to hunt you down if you missed a week. It's also not like God is taking attendance up in heaven and being like, "Oh, I missed again. Like I'm downgrading their room. This is what's happening. This is not how it works." But I think for church for what we do here to have its full effect, being here has to be a a priority for us. So uh, I encourage you toward that. Now let's talk a little bit again about the book of Revelation. If you recall, uh, about 13 weeks ago, I spent a whole Sunday actually not talking about any specific text, but just saying, I want to set your expectations for the book of Revelation. I need to remind you of a couple of those things today. First of all, uh, the book of Revelation belongs to a special genre of ancient literature called apocalyptic. That word apocalyptic comes from a Greek word, apokalupto, which means to reveal. And this entire genre of literature sought to explain what was happening on earth by looking into heaven with highly symbolic imagery. We see several different examples of apocalyptic literature in the Bible, in in the prophets like Ezekiel and Daniel and elsewhere. There are a bunch of books that didn't make it into the Bible that are also apocalyptic literature, both as uh, mainly as Jewish books. It was a Jewish form of literature as much as anything else. And, uh, as I said, apocalyptic literature is highly, highly symbolic, which means that most of the things we see here, for example, the days, right? We saw three and a half years, or 40 months, actually. We saw 1,260 days. We saw three and a half days, all in this one passage. And these are all symbolic numbers. And I'll talk to you about what they mean. But I know for some of us, that feels a little scary. Like, we're not taking the Bible seriously if we interpret it symbolically. Well, uh, I look out this morning, and I see that all of you still have your hands and your feet and your eyes. Uh, Why is that significant? Does anyone remember what Jesus said about if your hand causes you to sin, what you should do? You cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, what do you do? Gouge it out, right. Uh, You said pluck, which isn't quite as horrible as gouge, but here we go. (laughs) And uh, you're sitting here this morning, you know that parts of Scripture are symbolic or or metaphorical or the language is figurative. And I know that because I'm pretty sure that all of us at one point or another have sinned with our hands because we were all children at one point and we probably hit our siblings or somebody else. Maybe you are the exception to the rule. That would be pretty spectacular of you. Yeah, but uh, no, we did that and we didn't cut our hands off. We know Jesus wasn't serious. He was using hyperbole. It says, whatever causes you to sin, get away from it as best as you can. There was an early uh, Christian origin who followed Jesus' commands to cut things off if uh, he sinned, and everyone else looked at him and said, Origin, we need to have a talk. That's not how, what you should have done. That was not pleasing to God. So the book of Revelation is highly symbolic. Secondly, uh, we talked about taking the idealist view of the book of Revelation. You don't have to remember that term. 
but there are several different ways you can look at the events described in the book of Revelation. They've either largely already happened. This is called the preterist view. They are largely future, which is called the futurist view, and is the only one that's easy to remember because it says what it means. And then there's the idealist view, which says the book of Revelation describes patterns of history, things that we see fulfilled once and twice and over and over again, and may have a final fulfillment, and yet we see these things being fulfilled in our day. And this is how we've been interpreting the book of Revelation so far. Now, preterists, idealists, and futurists are all Christians. Taking one of those particular views doesn't make you more or less Christian, although it may make, help you understand Revelation better or not as well. So, just a couple of those things right here, because this is a highly symbolic passage. We need to remember what we're dealing with. Okay, that was the boring, you know, college lecture. Let's get into the actual text here. I'm going to open my Bible to it, and I encourage you to do the same to Revelation chapter 11. We start off with this. I was given a read. This is John speaking. I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar with its worshipers, but exclude the outer court. Don't measure it because it has been given to the Gentiles and they will trample on the holy city for 42 months. So first we have a scene of the temple and we have John measuring it out. And it's important, remember, because Revelation is this apocalyptic book, it's often using symbols that the audience would have known about. And this particular symbol of the temple being measured is actually in a few different places, but especially in Ezekiel chapters 40 to 48. And here, the second temple is being built. The first temple uh, that Solomon built was destroyed by the Babylonians when they invaded in 586 B.C. And then uh, a number of years later, after the exiles returned to the land, they built the temple again. And it was a hard job. And it was a dangerous job. And when it was finished, you can see this in the book of Haggai, in the prophet Haggai, the people wept because it wasn't nearly as wonderful as Solomon's temple. But Ezekiel is telling everyone, this temple in some sense is better because all of these horrible things had entered God's temple. The reason God's people went into exile is because they kept worshiping other gods. And sometimes they did it in God's temple itself, where heaven and earth in Jewish understanding and in our understanding met. They brought other gods, false gods, into the throne room of the one true God. And when Ezekiel measured off the temple in his, his book, what he was doing is he was creating a sort of protection around the temple that said none of this idolatry will enter this temple again. Now, the temple here does not actually refer to the Jerusalem temple. But Ezekiel's temple is in mind, which is a heavenly temple rather than a physical temple. And here we also see that the temple is the place, again, where heaven and earth meet. And where is that now that Jesus has come and given his Holy Spirit to his people? Is it in a building? No. We could go outside and, and do church just as well. Maybe not today. <laughs> and we've done that in the past. And God was present just as much out there as he was in here. No, it's, it's not a physical building. In 1 Corinthians 
chapter 3. I'm going to actually open directly to this. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 to 17. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? Did you know that as Christians and especially as the church, we are the place where heaven and earth meet? Have you thought about that? Have you thought about how awesome in the truly classic sense of that word, not the surfer sense, that is, how incredible and amazing you, wherever you go, whatever you do, because of your faith in Jesus Christ, you have received the Holy Spirit, and now you are a place where heaven and earth meet. And when God's people gather together, how much more so are we the place where heaven and earth meet, where we reflect the glory of God out into the world by the things that we do and the things that we say, and most importantly, by the things that God does among us. We are the place where heaven and earth meet. And now we find that we have been measured. Go and measure the temple of God and the altar with its worshipers, you and me. G.K. Beale, I think, is, is really helpful when he talks about the temple. Uh, and I don't think I actually put his quote in my notes. So you're not going to hear just how helpful he is. And I'm going to tell you instead. But God meets his people, first of all, in the temple. Because we are the place where heaven and earth meets. And secondly, it talks about the altar because we are the ones who have profited from the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, and it's been made effective for us. We are the true worshipers. When anyone else wants to know what does God look like and what does right worship look like, we are the example to the world of what that is. And what is our true worship? It's our lives lived in obedience to Jesus Christ. Not just because we keep rules and commandments, although that touches on it, but because we are living the life of Jesus Christ. Did you notice Jesus, he doesn't just make these external rules for us and say, just keep these external rules, do and don't do. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount, I read this in, uh, last week in my own, my own private, uh, my own devotions, my own quiet time, if you will. I was reading the Sermon on the Mount, and when I got in there, I was reminded once again that Jesus said things like, hey, if someone asks you, you know, if, if anyone has hated his brother, he's already a murderer. Because it's not just about what you do, it's about what's in your heart. Are you people who in your very soul are being shaped by the gospel? And Jesus says, your righteousness, it has to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And everyone would have heard that and said, we can never do that. And that's exactly what Jesus wanted them to think. Because Jesus said, you are not going to fulfill the law. I am going to fulfill the law. That's my job. I'm going to do it all. And then I will be your righteousness. I will be your righteousness. So that when God looks at you, the book of Romans and and Galatians especially love to use this word that we have been justified. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith in the book of Romans. And what that means, it comes from this Greek word, dikaio, to declare righteous. Not to say your sins are forgiven, although that's true, but to declare you righteous. And you can't be righteous unless you've done righteous things, right? If you just have your sin paid for, aren't you just morally neutral now? 
neither good nor bad. We're waiting to see which way you're going to turn out. But Jesus did more than just cleanse us from sin. He gives us his righteousness. Martin Luther called this the great exchange, and he described it in terms of marriage. He said, when a man and a woman get married, everything that belongs to the wife now belongs to the husband, and everything that belongs to the husband now also belongs to the wife. You in your marriage to Jesus Christ. That's ideally how it should go. I saw someone shaking their head out there. But I, you in your marriage to Jesus Christ. And he loves talking of the church as his bride. You have given him your sin. And he has given you his righteousness. You are righteous in Jesus. Not because of what you've done, but because of what he's done. So now live like it. Live like it. That's why we do good things. Not because we're trying to make God happy, because Jesus has done that for us. But because now we want to live in the life that Jesus has won for us. The heroin addict, once he gets clean, is terrified of becoming addicted again. Uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, AA, uh, they actually, I I love this about them. They say, uh, if you're an alcoholic, you're an alcoholic all your life long. So you, need, you have to stay away from that all of your life long, not because it's bad, but because it's bad for you. So now, don't live out of your alcoholism. Live out of something else. Live out of what AA calls it your higher power. Live out of what your higher power makes you. We know, live out of what Jesus Christ makes you. He makes you righteous already. So live like it. So be like it. Now, if you're paying attention, you notice that the temple of God and the altar with its worshipers are measured, but not the outer court. Do not measure it because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months. Oh, man, we have so much to do. Goodness gracious. The measuring of the temple itself... The inner courts and the altar signifies the spiritual protection of the church, which corresponds to the sealing of the saints. Remember the, uh, the sixth seal uh, all the way back several chapters ago, what, in Revelation 6, I believe? Nope, it's Revelation 7. 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel are sealed. And for what purpose? So that uh, do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of our servants of God. And these are the ones whose tears are wiped away forever and ever. And before the throne of God, they will never hunger or thirst. The sun will not be down on them nor any scorching heat for the lamb at the center of their throne will be their shepherd. This is the sealing of the church, not just 144,000 people, but the entirety of the church. We know this, again, the number is symbolic because it's 12 tribes of Israel times 12,000 from each tribe. Well, times, excuse me, how do we do this again? It's 12 times 12 times 1,000, right? The 12 tribes of Israel all sealed and 1,000 to remind us of just how, uh, how many there will be. It's like when you're hanging out with your buddies, especially as a kid, and you say there's like 1,000 of them, and you just mean a lot. You don't mean actually 1,000. The church is sealed and given spiritual protection. Nothing can take us away from the life that God has for us in Jesus Christ. And yet, the outer court is not sealed, but is given to the Gentiles. And they will trample on the holy city for 42 months. 
42 months, if you can do the math, is three and a half years, which corresponds to, in Daniel 7 and elsewhere, time, times, and half a time, where Daniel describes a terrible, terrible hardship and persecution that the entire nation of Israel has to go through. And he's telling us the same thing here. Living in this world, even though you are sealed, is not without danger. And here is, I think, a big takeaway for us right now. Because for so many of us, I think that most of what we ask God for in our lives is the physical stuff, isn't it? It's like, God, take care of me and my job. God, take care of my health. God, take care, you know, provide for me and my family, food and drink and all these things that I need. And God cares about those things. He really does. But how much time do we actually spend before the Lord wrestling over him for our soul and for our spirit? How do we value that spiritual protection that we receive? I know as I was looking at this this week, I kind of thought, well, but what good is the spiritual protection when the physical protection isn't there? What good does that do? How will people know? How will people know? How will I know? that God's taking care of me in this life if I can't actually feel him taking care of me. A number of us are out there, we are struggling with sickness and disease. We're struggling with, are we going to be able to pay the bills this week? We're struggling with all of these different, this world sort of concerns. And I'm not going to minimize them. They're real concerns. I'm not telling you they don't matter. But when we put them on the scales... Which do we consider more significant? That we will live eternally with God spiritually protected, spiritually fulfilled, with our bodies restored in the resurrection? Or are we more concerned about the things that have to do with just today? Do we pray as hard for the healing of our souls as we pray for the healing of our bodies? When I, uh, two, three years ago now, when I was having major back problems, I remember sitting in my recliner thinking, this, I hate this. This is awful. Saying, God, I really want you to take care of this. And the Holy Spirit spoke into my heart and said, You know, Ian, I'm trying to teach you that your future is more important than your present. That you are going to be restored one day to a new resurrection body that won't fall apart instead of to this physical body that is falling apart. You're experiencing that right now. Even if I heal you now, it's going to happen again. Right? We all know that, right? Our, our struggles with our bodies are not one-off. Yeah, you're laughing because you're saying, yeah, not two-off either, or three-off, or four-off, or five-off. They go on and on and on. Because I'm trying to teach you how to hope in the better thing instead of the lesser thing. You know what I said back to God in that moment? Well, that stinks. That's not what I asked for. I want to get up out of my chair and I want to go play soccer. You know, I want, to, I want to go pick my kids up. And you're telling me I should be satisfied with this thing that's going to happen in like, I don't know how long, but not today. And God's, well, yeah. Blaise Pascal, in his, uh, in his work, Pensees. Blaise Pascal is a fascinating guy. He's a mathematician in France back a couple hundred years ago. I, I can't remember the date exactly. But he used to, he was a Christian, and a number of his friends were not. And he used to carry little scraps of paper with him, and he'd scribble little ideas of how he could share Jesus with his friends, who were very intelligent, scholarly sorts of people. And one of his little scribbles, they were later uh, put into book form in penzes, which just means thoughts, which is really neat. But one of his scribbles has become known as Pascal's Wager. 
You might have heard of this before. Pascal's wager goes like this. Uh, if, if Christianity is not true, but I live like it is, I will lose 70 years of my life-ish, you know, however long we live, and then it won't matter for all of eternity. So I'll, he says, I'll lose finitely. I'll lose in a measurable way. He says, but on the other hand, if Christianity is true, and I live my life like it's not, then I may get a good 70-ish years, but I will lose an entire eternity. I will lose infinitely. So Pascal said, if your life was like a wager, if your life was like a bet, which bet should you take? Which bet is the only one that makes any sense? To lose a little bit, or and with the potential to gain a little bit, or to lose everything when you could have had it all. He says, bet on God. Bet on God. See, the spiritual protection is much more significant because it guarantees a forever, a better forever than our, our present is. God measures, God tells John to measure the temple so that his people will know, hey, whatever we lose in this life, we will gain infinitely in the next. And we'll have the joy of knowing Jesus in this life. We'll have the certainty that we are held in his arms, even today. And then he says this. He says, I will appoint my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Now, again, if you're doing the math, 1,260 days is essentially equivalent to 42 months. That's significant. These two witnesses will prophesy for the entire time of the church's tribulation, clothed in sackcloth. And who are they? They are the two olive trees uh, and the two lampstands, and they stand before the Lord of the earth. So this is, once again, not for the first time in the book of Revelation, taking us back to the prophet Zechariah, chapter 4. Here... Uh, God says, okay, you're rebuilding the temple and it's hard and it's not going well and you're afraid you're going to be defeated and the result is not as much as you expect. But I want you to know that there are these two lampstands, which are the Holy Spirit, with which I'm going to fill the two palm trees, which are the, the kingly figure in, in Judea at that day and the priestly figure in Judea. Uh, Zerubbabel and... I'm forgetting the other guy's name. Oh, gosh. In any case, these two are the means through which God is going to accomplish his work. And John reuses this metaphor. He reuses this image. He says, uh, remember, we've seen lampstands before in the book of Revelation. We can be a little interactive for the moment. Anyone remember where we saw the lampstands? All the way back in the beginning? And what did the lampstands represent? The churches. The seven churches. Each are described as being a lampstand. And I love chapter 1. Jesus is walking among the seven lampstands. You are not alone. There's that Carrie Joby song. I am not alone. Let's change it to we are not alone because we're a church, right? 
we are not alone. You will go before me, and so on. Jesus is amongst his churches. And so these two witnesses are actually the church. And they're speaking to the world of the truth of who God is and who we need to be as a result. They're speaking the truth out into the world. And this is a scary thing. This is not a friendly world that's ready to hear the message, saying, oh, please tell us. But they're proclaiming the message. And now we're understanding why why the temple courts are being trampled. Because everyone's saying, shut up. Stop it. We don't have any interest in hearing what you're talking about. The lampstands, though, represent, again, show that the church, this is the job of the church to continue to testify to who God is and what he's done in Jesus Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit to do so. Here, we get to hear from G.K. Beale. He says, just as the priest and the king from Zechariah 4 uh, were the Spirit's key means for the establishment of the temple against opposition, so here, these two witnesses, the church, I'll tell you why they're two in just a minute, are likewise empowered by the Spirit to perform the same role in relation to the heavenly temple. As with the temple in Zechariah 4, the spiritual temple of God appears insignificant You feel insignificant in the world today? We are not culturally significant in this time in the way that the Christian church was in times past. And that is the norm for the church, not the exception. Likewise, uh, the spiritual temple of God appears insignificant, especially because it's invisible. You can't see it. And its destiny seems questionable because it is opposed by worldly powers. Even within the church, there are people here who are saying, if we don't do something, we're, we're going to lose. We're going to be wiped out. There will be no church left in the West at all. And folks, that's, that's like coming to this communion table and saying, all I feel is guilt because it's all about me at the end of the day. Saying the church is going to go is saying, it's our job to do this, not God's job. And you know what the last thing I want to do here in Lemon Cove is? The last thing I want to do is build something where people will look and say, oh, look, what a great pastor Ian is. Oh, look, what amazing elders that church has. Oh, look, what incredible servants that church has. The last thing I want to do is build a ministry that points back to us. Because that's all we've been doing in the world from the very beginning. We're trying to figure out how to solve the world's problems, and we're always doing it in our own wisdom and power and strength, and it never works. Eternal change only happens when God works. I want people to see this church and to see me and to see you and to see everything that we do and say, there is no way those people could have done that. They are not smart enough. They are not strong enough. There are not enough of them to pull it off. I love... uh, Back when we did the Easter egg hunt earlier in the year, uh, Debbie Stewart, in all of her wisdom, said, why didn't we invite Sequoia Union? And I shamefacedly said, because we're afraid they'll all show up. And then what will we do? And that's exactly the kind of thing that God wants us to start dreaming about, isn't it? That's exactly who God wants us to be here. Not, look at what we built, but look, only God could have built that. These two witnesses. The church seems insignificant. Its destiny seems questionable because it is opposed by worldly powers. 
And yet, the church is the only thing that will last. The church is the only institution that makes it into eternity. The church is the only group of people whom God holds on to forever and ever and ever. Not because of who we are, but because of who he is and what he's done. Which, by the way, ought to make us pretty humble, huh? When we come across other folks in the world. But we say, it's only the grace of God. It's only the grace of God that lets me in. And if it's only the grace of God that lets me in, you can be in too. If God can get me in, he can bring anyone. Now, these two witnesses, it says, if anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. Just in case you missed it, he said it twice. They have power to shut up the heavens so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying, and they have the power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. First of all, uh, have any of you ever burned up your enemies with fire from your mouth? I think this is probably a symbol. I don't think this is what we do in the New Testament. No, something different is going on here. Uh, If you remember all the way back in chapter 1, Jesus is described, and he's this amazing guy. He's glowing like the sun. He's got feet like burnished bronze. He's got eyes like flame of fire. And what about his mouth? Do you remember what was happening with his mouth? There was a sword coming out of it with which to judge the nations. And I think that's what's happening again here. The fire is because these two witnesses are going to have the ministry like Elijah. Remember what we were talking about at the beginning of the service? Elijah up on Mount Carmel, and he's there with all the prophets of Baal, and he says, let's find out who's God. We'll have a contest. We'll build an altar in whichever God sends fire from heaven to burn up the sacrifice. He is God. They said, that sounds good to us. Yeah, let's do that. And so they, the prophets of Baal start off, and they go for hours. Like, God, you know, come down, burn, burn up our, our sacrifice, and, and nothing happens. And so they take out knives and spears, and they start cutting themselves so that God will pay attention to them, and nothing happens. And Elijah, God bless him, starts saying, surely Baal's a God, like really egging them on so that there will be no doubt about how afraid he is of their pitiful God. And then Elijah, he, he builds his altar. They pour a bunch of water on it, which is crazy because they're in a drought and he wants to waste this water. And then he kneels down and he says, hey, God, this is the moment. This is the time. You need to prove who you are to all of these people here and they will worship you. And so where the prophets of Baal were working for hours, Elijah prays for like 30 seconds and fire comes down from heaven and consumes all of the sacrifice, all of the stones on the altar, and even burns the water that they poured upon it. See, we're referring back here to the ministry of Elijah. There's all sorts of fire in Elijah's ministry. And the fire doesn't just tell us about Elijah, but it tells us that what the church will give that brings judgment on the world is, is the truth. They will speak. We will speak. And we will say, Jesus is the only true God who exists eternally in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. He alone is to be worshipped. He alone can pay for sin. He alone can make you holy and righteous. And at least... 
Big swaths of the world respond by saying, we don't want to have anything to do with you. Your God's no good. Your God's not just. Your God is bad. And that speech becomes judgment upon the world, proof of its wickedness. And that speech also torments the conscience of the world. We talked about this actually uh, uh, in the trumpet judgments. If you remember the locusts that have stinging scorpion tails, the horses that also have like cobra tails that sound really cool and scary. And they torment the world and they bring death to the world. And the way they do it is not because they're actually going to be locusts crawling everywhere with scorpion tails and lion heads stinging people, but because people, no matter how hard they try, can't build the world that they are looking for and are stuck in this ever-circling cycle of despair, lower and lower and lower, suffering psychologically until finally, until finally, it's over. And they die. See, the power in the church is the word that we speak, is our testimony to Jesus Christ. I'm going to end with this. You're all ready to praise God for that too. But again, sometimes I find that doesn't seem like enough. Have you been there? It doesn't seem like enough, God. This person is... Is, is hurting, and I need you to heal them. This God situation in my life seems like a pain I can never come back from that will dominate me all of my days. I need you to dig out the pain, not to just keep reminding me that Jesus rose from the dead. But that's because we misdiagnose. We misdiagnose what's really broken in the world. We look at symptoms and say, that's the cancer. And we've done it before. We'll do it again. We're doing it even now. God, be merciful to your people who get it wrong so often. We look and say, unless this political figure wins, it's all over. We look and say, unless we get more children in the church, it's all over. And, well, there might be some truth to that. But that's God's business to bring the people into the church. Our business is to be faithful with his word. And trust him for the result. We look into our own lives and say, God, if I die, who will care for my, my child? I think this is a father all the time. You know, you, you get those moments in life where something hurts. And, and you know, it's not a big deal, but it just pops into your mind. Like, maybe I have brain cancer, you know, and I, it's like, I'm about to go. You, you ever have those moments or is this my own psychological, you know, issue that I need to seek treatment for? That's just me. Okay, great, <laughs> great. And you say to God, God, if I were to go, think about my family. Think about my family. Think of who's going to be a dad to my children. Who's going to be a husband to my wife? Who's going to take care of my church if I'm not their pastor? What are the other things you think? If I'm not here, you know, who, who would support this person in their addiction? If I'm not here, if I don't have the power, or God, if you don't do a miracle, how is this circumstance, how is this situation going to be okay? Because we don't really trust that Jesus' death and resurrection are enough for us. Folks, that's the difference between Christian and non-Christian. Is the death and resurrection of Jesus the answer? 
or is it just a nice thing? Is it the crutch with, we, with which we get through this life, or is it life itself? What can you do this week to help answer that question? You know the funny thing about faith? I, it's not about how certain you feel. It's about what you say yes to. And this week, I guarantee you, you're going to have a chance to say yes to something that doesn't make any sense. Someone is going to come up to you and say, I need your help. And you're going to say, saying yes doesn't make any sense. Someone is going, or some situation is going to happen in your life, and you're going to be tempted to compromise living in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And you're going to say, saying yes to Jesus' righteousness in this situation doesn't make any sense. Faith is saying yes when you know that's who Jesus is, when you know that's what he wants, even when it doesn't make any sense. That's why mustard seed faith works.